he's not even prime minister yet. And already Boris Johnson is forcing out ambassadors and sucking up to Donald Trump. We'll explain how none of these misdeeds will stop him from moving into number 10. Plus the rest of the Tory leadership nonsense and how Labour responded to criticism of its failure to tackle anti-Semitism by sending in the lawyers. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast, which comes to you at the end of a ridiculously busy week. Boris Johnson isn't even in Downing Street, but already his idiotic impact is being felt. During the only Tory leadership debate that he deigned to take part in, the former Foreign Secretary explicitly refused to support Britain's embattled ambassador in Washington. And hours later, Sir Kim Darroch resigned. The leaking of his frank, but let's be honest, accurate description of the Trump administration as inept and uniquely dysfunctional, it is fair to say did not go down terribly well with the toddler-in-chief. Trump didn't just hit out at Darrock, who he called wacky and a pompous fool, but also Theresa May, who he called foolish for ignoring his apparently solid gold advice on Brexit. Already, our next Prime Minister has demonstrated just how willing he is to do whatever Donald Trump wants, a craven display of bending the knee before he's even in office. Well, in a moment, we'll look at what it says about Johnson and Theresa May's courting of Trump over the last two and a half years. But first, we'll get the view from Washington. I spoke to Simon Marks, the head of Feature Story News in D.C., who you would think by now would have got used to Trumpian tantrums. Absolutely extraordinary, and I think chilling for people in Washington, because this was not just about Donald Trump having a, a, a hissy fit and a tantrum over the fact that Kim Darroch, in those confidential memos, had said that he was inept. This was about the President of the United States indicating that he doesn't just now require loyalty and fealty from the people in his inner circle within the White House, from Republicans serving in Congress up on Capitol Hill, even from Supreme Court justices, he appears to require loyalty and fealty from diplomats serving in this city. If you peeked into the diplomatic bags of any ambassador serving here, any ambassador worth the title of ambassador serving here, they will have been saying exactly the same things about the Trump administration, because what Sir Kim Darrock was reporting back uh, to his masters in London is not considered vaguely controversial. He has every right to say it because he is a diplomat here and diplomats require the ability to speak honestly and openly to the governments they serve. And he's not required to be supportive of Donald Trump or loyal to him. And Donald Trump, by taking this very public action that railroaded Sir Kim Darrock's career, I think after day one of the Twitter criticism, there may have been a marginal opportunity for Sir Kim Darroch to survive. But after day two and after the White House doors were closed to him at that dinner uh, on Monday night here with the Emir of Qatar, it became absolutely impossible, as Sir Kim said in his resignation letter, uh, for him to do his job. And that sends a chilling message to diplomats serving here that they better be pretty certain that their confidential memos back to their respective capitals are going to be kept confidential because they could be next. You know, he had the backing of the current prime minister, but he didn't have the backing of the man who is almost certainly about to take over. And the perception certainly in London is that given the choice between backing Britain's ambassador in Washington, who after all was just doing his job and keeping Donald Trump happy, 
Boris Johnson chose the latter. There's no question that it contributed to his decision some hours later to furnish his resignation. I'm not sure that there was an opportunity uh, even prior to that for him to continue serving in his position. You know, once the doors of the White House are being closed to you, at that point, the walls are closing in. There is an irony about the role Boris Johnson played in all of this, because one can say, well, Boris Johnson benefits because he gets an opportunity, maybe, to name the next ambassador here, and it can be a solidly pro-Brexit person that Donald Trump enjoys. But that opportunity was going to come anyway. So Kim Darrick is due to leave. He was due to retire uh, at the end of this year, beginning of next year. So the motivation for all of this seems from this end to be more about having a slap at the so-called deep state and the permanent civil service than necessarily creating an opportunity that the next prime minister would have had anyway to name an ambassador to the United States. Given Donald Trump's attitude to criticism, has anybody actually told him Boris Johnson once accused him of possessing a stupefying ignorance. I'm sure he knows. I'm sure he will have noticed it at the time. And with uh, President Donald Trump, relationships are absolutely inherently transactional. And so while I don't think at any point in the near future he is likely to find himself suddenly being an ardent admirer of Sadiq Khan, uh, with whom he's had a long-running Twitter uh, feud, once you uh, essentially kiss the ring uh, and once you line up firmly behind Donald Trump, those kinds of earlier transgressions, as Donald Trump and the people around him would see it, can be forgiven. You make him sound a bit like a mob boss. It's a family-run enterprise that has some characteristics of a New Jersey car dealership in terms of the way things operate. And loyalty for this man, we know, is vital. He demands it, he craves it, he desires it, and when he doesn't get it, he's not happy. You can turn it around. Boris Johnson has absolutely turned it around. The fall of Sir Kim Darroch and the role Donald Trump plays in it, I think, does raise fundamental questions about, you know, when everybody says Brexit is all about getting Britain's sovereignty back, what does that mean if the President of the United States essentially can determine the fate of the British ambassador to the United States? Simon Marks from Feature Story News in Washington. Well, let's bring in Robert Meakin at this stage. It's not a coincidence that Kim Darrett resigned a few hours after the man who's almost certain to be Prime Minister in a couple of weeks' time very, very clearly failed to back him. This was Johnson's first proper test of leadership in a way, and he straight away backed away from defending Britain's interests in deference to Donald Trump. Indeed. And also, I think we have to remember you know, the, the cynical game that Boris was playing there was who is he communicating with? It was, again, that, that core Tory membership, that, that small percentage of the population, many who would consider Sir Kim Darrick to be one of these dastardly metropolitan Remainer types. And again, they, they would expect him to give him a bloody nose. So there was, there was no question of him ever doing Darrick any favours whatsoever. And rightly, Darrick then concluded, you know, I, I've got no room for manoeuvre here when this man becomes prime minister. Best fall on my sword now. But it's been a, it's been a grisly affair. Aside from what it says about Boris Johnson, the way Boris Johnson is going to treat the United States, the, the bit that I find really odd about this is that grassroots Tories keep saying that Boris Johnson 
is just the man to go into battle against the European Union and drive a hard bargain on Brexit, walk into that room in Brussels, look them in the eye, convince them he's serious about leaving without a deal, get the deal we need. And yet here he wouldn't stand up for a senior diplomat who was in trouble for doing his job because he was worried about offending Donald Trump. But he, apparently, is your tough negotiator. This is a character that obviously he's he's keen to portray, but as you say, the first real acid test, he, he has failed. I mean, let's, if, if we step back from him, just think, just imagine if Boris had said, look, it's it's shameful that such, such comments were leaked. That's where the, the real crime is here. But however irresponsible, however much I may disagree with what Sir Kim has said, he is our British ambassador till the end of the year and we will stick by him and then there will be a successor. That would have looked like a responsible, strong leader. Trump would have raged for a while. There would have been all sorts of nonsense about Sir Kim on Twitter over the coming months. But we could have ridden that storm and we'd have, we'd have emerged with dignity and credibility. Instead, we've just panicked and, as, as someone said only this week, thrown Sir Kim under a bus all too hastily. You can bet, by the way, that Donald Trump's ambassador in London has been giving exactly the same kind of assessment, oh, or maybe even worse, about the UK, because that's what ambassadors are supposed to do. They're meant to give frank, honest advice to governments about what's going on around the world. You would imagine Boris Johnson would want ambassadors to continue to do that when he is prime minister, but that system only works if they think that advice isn't going to be plastered all over the front page of the Mail on Sunday. Obviously, this very much symbolises this dark, murky culture we now live in, where whether it's sort of, you know, cyber psychos you know, hacking into things or whether it's government aides being indiscreet and leaking stuff. You know, the, the, the rule is now that you, you really cannot write anything down about anybody that might be rather disparaging, critical or embarrassing because there's a very good chance it's going to get out. My goodness, even just verbal communication is dangerous enough, but actually putting anything into print can be career suicide, as Derek found out this week. It's also further proof after that leak from the National Security Council about the Huawei talks a while ago of the extent to which discipline has collapsed at the top of what is a very, very leaky government. Now, this would be something for the next prime minister to get on top of if the next prime minister wasn't somebody who appears to see Donald Trump as some sort of role model. But also, as Theresa May prepares to step off the stage, what a kick in the teeth for her. She has spent two and a half years sucking up to Donald Trump, racing over there to be the first foreign leader to visit him, offering him a state visit. What, what is it, like a month since Donald Trump was over here for a state visit? And and this is how he how he thanks her. Yeah, and I you know I felt you know, sympathy for her in that situation. It's not a very very sexy argument to have in this in this often anti-Trump world. But my my view is that she had to do the right thing. She'll have had no time for Donald Trump as a person, but she understandably respected and saw the importance, obviously, of the of the office of president and wanted to maintain relations as well as she could, knowing damn well that the volatile toddler across the water could go berserk at any minute. And of course, this was just you know. Because of the, this leak, this was a red rag to him. And he responds in the only fashion he knows how. So it was a bit of bad luck for Theresa May, essentially, just before she leaves. She'll have been under no illusions about Donald Trump from the start. I think she did the right and responsible thing by just trying to deal with him in a conventional, responsible way. But obviously, he's not a conventional or responsible politician. 
Now, Boris Johnson's disastrous blunder into international relations is exactly the kind of thing that could derail his Tory leadership bid, or at least it might have done, perhaps, if it had happened two or three weeks ago. Of course, Johnson only bothered to submit himself to an actual debate once the ballot papers were already out and a huge proportion of Tory party members had already voted. And frankly, on the basis of his performance this week, you can see why every question elicited some kind of witless comment or a string of gags designed to cover up the fact that beyond those japes, Boris Johnson doesn't actually seem to have any sort of plan or any real idea of how to resolve our various Brexit-related crises. Of course, grassroots Tories don't actually seem to care about this or any of his other shortcomings. They just desperately cling to the idea that he is perhaps their last hope of avoiding oblivion. Now, Robert, I imagine that you, like I, was watching this um, debate on, on Tuesday evening. For those listening who may have missed it, let me give you a capsule summary of how it went. The presenter, Julie Etchingham, would ask Boris Johnson a question. Johnson would respond by sort of going, bah, 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 optimism, or bah, 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 we can do it wave his arms around a bit and then the studio audience would applaud then jeremy hunt would ask johnson a question and we'd be back to blah, 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 blah. you know any impartial assessment would have said that on the substance of the issues that jeremy hunt probably won that debate but it's not going to make any difference is it rank and file tories love boris johnson they want boris johnson in downing street and no number of idiotic or ridiculous statements no number of false statements is going to change that. I don't think you know, either their support would have particularly shifted in any in any real direction there. I think uh, Boris Johnson supporters would have been would have been completely fine with that performance. Jeremy Hunt supporters would have got what they know from the man. Hunt is a man of detail. He's you know he's he's a responsible, rather straight laced statesman like character. Boris, you know what you're going to get there. Boris the Maverick with all the broad brushstrokes and no detail, but you know the force of personality comes through. I, I thought you know Jeremy Hunt did his best to try and get on the front foot against his own personal instincts to try and put a mark on Boris early on but Boris was able to bat it away he had a lot of the room on his side as you say making strange and audible noises when, when he really didn't have anything else to say and, he, and he, he can get away with it right now the Conservative Party membership or the people voting look they voted for a straight-laced, responsible, boring politician to deliver Brexit three years ago. She failed. Jeremy Hunt, as we often say, is seen as, you know, Theresa May in trousers. And they, so what do they go for instead? Where the, when the party feels like it's on life support, they go for the maverick, full of bluster, the force of personality who thinks by his own strengths of convictions and nothing more, somehow he'll magic together a formula that will get us over the line. And the Tory party is in such a state due to its fear of A, not getting Brexit and B, Jeremy Corbyn, they will go for it for the time being. We shouldn't imagine that Jeremy Hunt is is the saviour. <laughs> it's all relative. Yes. In, in the shadow of Boris Johnson, we suddenly invest Jeremy Hunt with sort of Jesus-like properties or something. I mean, Hunt has been a hugely polarising figure. He alienated pretty much the entire medical profession during his time as, as health secretary. But one of the interesting things about all this is that the, some of the people in the Johnson camp after the debate were sort of, well... Jeremy Hunt's making a big mistake, of course, by going after Boris in this way, because, you know, how's, how's Johnson going to give him a job in his cabinet now after Hunt has so publicly attacked him? They seem to have critically misunderstood the point of a leadership campaign. The other candidates are not supposed to line up to pay tribute to Boris Johnson. They're supposed to challenge him. They seem surprised that this happened, perhaps because their guy 
has has done his level best to avoid facing any questions of any kind during the entire campaign. Yeah, it's not the sort of treatment Boris has obviously had from one of his one of the other contenders to date. Look, it's it's the inevitable cynical consequence of, the, of Boris's current status that he hasn't wanted to do these debates. It's not something new, you know. Tony Blair. When he looked way ahead, did he want to do televised debates? No, he did not. Why did Gordon Brown do a televised debate? Because he was desperate because he was losing an election. It's an old British rule. If the front runner doesn't feel the need to do a TV debate because he or she is far ahead, they won't do it. And Boris is just working from that same template. So, yeah, he's rightly getting plenty of flack for it. But it, it, it's not like he's doing anything particularly new. Boris Johnson's failure to stand up for Kim Darroch was shocking enough, but perhaps just as shocking was his refusal to rule out suspending Parliament. Here is the man who you know, probably two weeks from now is going to have his feet under the desk in number 10, who cannot rule out that if he doesn't get his own way, he is going to suspend Parliament. You've had one of his own predecessors as Tory leader, Sir John Major, this week saying he will launch legal action to stop it, saying it would create a constitutional crisis, pointing out that the last time something like this happened, the country ended up in a civil war. Look, it's easy to let stuff like this wash over you because we've had so many insane moments of, of exaggeration and hyperbole in the last three years. But just consider the scale of the action that Boris Johnson says he won't take off the table. He is willing, within weeks of becoming prime minister, to go to the Queen and ask her to suspend Parliament, to stop it from performing its function of holding the government to account, to allow him, and him alone, to drag the UK out of the EU without a deal, something that the parliament he wants to suspend in that situation has explicitly voted against. Boris he said more than once, well, I, I am not ruling anything out at this stage, when obviously he was talking about shutting down parliament, he was talking about no deal. Why does he say that? Because, frankly, he has no idea how this is going to play out. I think that's the, the brutal reality. Boris is arrogant enough to think, again, via his force of personality, that he can somehow, whatever the circumstances, whatever the chaos that emerges, that he's the one who can fight a way through. So he's certainly not going to rule out doing anything at this point because he can't, because he doesn't know what lies ahead. I mean, you can't blame Tory party members, let alone voters, I suppose, for wanting a japester prime minister after the relentless misery of the last three years in some respects but just strikes me that right now probably isn't the best time to call for the keystone cops cabinet it is a measure of how crazy the past few days have been that only now are we getting around to the hour-long documentary that exposed the extent of anti-Semitism inside the Labour Party and its apparent unwillingness to do anything about it? The BBC spoke to several former party workers who, in some cases, broke non-disclosure agreements to allege anti-Semites were being allowed to stay, recommended punishments were being overturned, and efforts to frustrate progress on the problem went all the way to those at the heart of Jeremy Corbyn's inner circle. Now, none of this is really new. We already knew that Labour has a huge problem with anti-Semitic abuse from people who ally themselves with the party. And we already knew that the party machine moves on this issue at the pace of an arthritic ant. But to see it laid out in this way with all of that witness testimony was still horrifying. Robert, let's start with the non-disclosure orders, because this is the bit that I found the newly astonishing. Let's put it that way. Labour 
the party that's meant to stand up for oppressed workers, unless, it seems, those workers are being oppressed by the Labour Party, in which case they'll set libel lawyers to the rich and famous on them. Labour, the party that has publicly opposed the use of gagging orders, handing them out like confetti inside their own offices. They obviously came out fighting the Labour Party and really just, you know, consider clearly these uh, disgruntled stroke, you know, more than distressed uh, former employers as, as traitors to the cause, essentially. And, and I think, again, that's, that's what we have to understand about Labour's reaction to this, you know, constantly. I th- they, they're always seeing that this is part, really, of a sinister, metropolitan, Blairite-friendly plot to somehow you know, destabilise Jeremy Corbyn. And I don't think they can ever see beyond that. And hence why you can sometimes see these 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 quite over the top reactions when they try to hammer down anyone inside their own organisation who dares to say they've handled this in a disastrous way, which, of course, they have. Rather than uh, use the, the time they have to engage with this huge crisis inside the party, instead, they were busy issuing instructions to what are described as digital outriders, telling them to wage some kind of Twitter war of attrition. There was this advice that was leaked, I think, to the Huffington Post, uh, telling people that they should blitz social media with allegations of Tory Islamophobia. Now, look, Islamophobia in the Tory party is an important issue which deserves to be talked about more than it has been. But that doesn't absolve Labour of blame for failing to deal with anti-Semitism in its own ranks. This is a classic example of whataboutery. You are confronted by your own problems and failings and say, oh, but what about all these other awful people on the other side of the fence? They do awful things, too. Why aren't you talking about how awful they are instead of the awful things that the awful people in our party are doing? What aboutery of that sort is the last excuse of people who have run out of excuses? Again, I think what the documentary displayed, what of course we already knew, is that the Labour Party has a, a significant number of crackpots in, in its current membership. If we then put a cynical hat on and look at the way Corbyn, Seamus Milne have wanted to handle this, I think that the truth is that Corbyn and Milne are aware there's a significant chunk of natural Corbyn support which holds those sort of views. And if you start rooting them out one by one, it, 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 it's like sort of going, going into, a, into a dangerous house and pulling down a few rooms and a few doors. Quite a lot of it may start tumbling down quickly when you do that. So I think that may explain the, the political and moral cowardice that, uh, that, has, that has dominated, I think, the Labour hierarchy's thinking with this. Well, on top of all this, Labour now has a new policy on Brexit. That's right, it's got another one. If we wait another few days, another one will probably show up too. Now the party supports a referendum to stop a Tory Brexit. That referendum would have Remain on the ballot paper and Labour would campaign for Remain if that referendum happened. But that only applies if the Tories are in government. What if Labour were to win an election before Brexit was completed. Surely now Labour would have to advocate scrapping Brexit and staying in the European Union. But no, if there's a snap election, which bear in mind could be two or three months away, they've said they'll just figure it out then. And they may well decide that a Brexit negotiated by Labour will be preferable to a second referendum. So if I've understood this correctly, Robert, if you are a Labour supporter who also passionately wants to stay in the European Union, and that's supposed to be about two thirds of Labour's electoral support, your best hope of achieving that is for the Labour Party to remain in opposition and the Conservatives to remain in government. 
That's a bit of a confusing message. Yeah, and also, let's just look at the key words. Tory Brexit. That is what Corbyn and the inner circle really want to play on. They they want to make this about the Tory party because that's when they're in comfortable political water. It's those dastardly Tories doing this and we'll take the opposing side for those dastardly Tories. Easy to rage from the outside at such things without wanting or wishing really to take any real responsibility to get into the nuts and bolts of the debate about uh, taking an actual clear line on the Brexit issue. Corbyn can't, won't do that. But what he is comfortable is saying is that is those evil Tories are doing this to the country. So you'll always hear it. He'll always refer to Tory Brexit because that's that's his get out. Just before we go, a cautionary tale for any businesses thinking of riding on the coattails of the Tory leadership campaign. The people behind the sausage firm Heck probably thought it was a great idea to invite Boris Johnson to their factory where he posed with a string of sausages around his neck. Other people, though, were a little less impressed. You can see, Robert, how this probably sounded like a great idea in a marketing meeting. You know, Boris Johnson's always going on about the bulldog spirit and all that kind of stuff. Nothing's more British than sausages. How could this possibly go wrong? And then suddenly the hashtag boycott heck is trending on Twitter. People saying, well, you can tell an awful lot about somebody by the company they keep. Now, the firm says, look, we invited both candidates to come. We weren't taking sides. This was the bit I found slightly odd. We're not taking sides in the Tory leadership election. I mean, we produced some boxes, some sausage boxes that said Boris bangers, but we're not taking sides. Yeah, it, it, it's unfortunate. And you can imagine the sort of the, the people involved in the marketing publicity side of things to the company, quite understandably, not necessarily political creatures and just didn't see a few steps ahead how this plays out. If there'd been some cynical old Westminster hack in there, they'd have said you don't want to touch that because this, this and this is obviously going to happen. You're going to alienate a huge part of your customer base. But these people just thought it was, well, we're going to be on the telly. We're going to, Boris Johnson's going to be here. That'll be fun for a couple of days, possibly not seeing uh, the ramifications. Yes, these Boris bangers managed to both taste rather insubstantial while also leaving a really nasty eye aftertaste. Yes, an unfortunate terminology I think it'd be fair to say with Bor- Boris's past. Techgate at least has provided a slightly light to end to what's been a fairly dreadful week. The Tory leadership marathon is nearly over with just the abject terror of the Johnson Premiership to come. Good times are ahead. We'll leave it there for now with our usual plea for ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you may be listening. Next time as Theresa May prepares to leave the stage, we'll try to figure out where it all went wrong for her. And of course, there's always more on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Party Games Pod. For the moment, though, thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.